Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. A reading from Mark 11, 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was, was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes, that whatever he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, like I said earlier, my name is Aaron. It is an honor to get to stand up here and teach the Word of God. Um, That was Tatum, my wife, who just read Scripture. And just want to take a second to honor her for a second. I'm so thankful um, for a wife who loves me well and loves this church well and enables me to get up here and do this as passionately and as excited as I'm able to do that. And so I'm incredibly thankful for her um, and the role she plays in my ability to do ministry. Before we start, let's slow down. Let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God to walk with us today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power it has to transform and change and renew. I pray as we get the chance to enter into the gospel of Mark today and and encounter an interaction Jesus has Um, I pray that we are able to bring to life what it is that you want us to hear, what Mark is trying to communicate. Um, And not only may we hear it, may we respond to it. Whatever response looks like for any season that someone's in this room, may we respond to in a way um, that is in order to know you more and be more like you. It's your name I pray. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, I am at Lake of the Ozarks. My, My wife's family has a lake house at Lake of the Ozarks. And we're on their back, uh, back porch. They have a nice little sunroom out there, and we're there with her family and some family friends. 
And so we just finished dinner, we're sitting out there, and we're talking, and all of a sudden, one of the family friends looks at me and goes, Aaron, what's the biggest challenge facing your generation? And I was like, first and foremost, you don't know the rules of the lake. These aren't the kind of conversations we have at the lake. <laughs> I'm kidding. I loved it. It was a great question. Really great question. And my response to him was truth. I think my generation struggles to understand and believe in truth. And so we get to talking about this. And, and we, we unpack it for a little while. And finally he asked me, like, where do, you, where do you find truth? And I said, well, first and foremost, I have to start with the Bible. Like, that is the ultimate place I'm going to start looking for truth in as followers of Jesus. That's where we're called to get informed about truth when it comes to culture and about how, it, how we should follow Jesus. And so we talk about that. We unpack that a little bit. He asked me some more questions. And then someone else who was there asks him, do you believe in God? And he looks at me. He, like, kind of has, like, this, like, I'm sorry smile on his face. He's like, no. I'm like, you don't, have to, you don't have to apologize. He says no. And they ask why. And he starts to explain some of the things he's dealt with at a church he was at. But here's a, a big reason, one of the big struggles he was facing as he was walking through his faith journey. He had, he had recently went through a faith journey where he was actually trying to figure out what he thought about God. One of the things he ran into is he said he had a friend who he said did the whole church thing. Was, 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 claimed to follow, was claimed following God. And in this moment, he tells me, he's like, I just always found it confusing because he's part of the whole church thing. He says he wants to follow God, but the way he lives his life doesn't make, to, make it seem like that's true. He's like, and I find that really confusing. He's like, I'm a pretty black and, black and white person. And so when, when I understand something, I actually am like, I, I should do it that way. And he says, anytime I've looked at what this book says, the Bible says, God gives some really clear instructions on how to live life. And I feel like as I've watched some people I know live their life, it doesn't seem to add up with what this has to say. It doesn't reflect the way it seems God calls them to live. It was like a profound moment almost. Where I hear him talking and I'm, I'm realizing he actually doesn't know how theological, theologically rich of a statement he's making. Because what he's saying without knowing he's saying it his faith produces. Our faith produces something. And it's that same idea that we're going to talk about today as we look at Mark 11. And Hill City, hear me. I genuinely, genuinely believe in our cultural moment that we're in. There's not a whole lot of things I believe are more urgent for us to understand than faith producing. Because listen, when we look at culture... When we look at everything, faith produces in all things. Faith isn't just a religious or spiritual thing. Faith produces in all things. We act out of faith constantly. When I say faith, I'm talking about like confidence in something. Confidence in something. And usually it's confidence in something to fulfill something. Right, so let's talk about what some of these cultural things that culture puts their faith in. Culture puts their confidence in their political position to make them feel significant. Culture puts their confidence in their sexual identity to make them feel accepted. 
Culture puts their confidence in success to make them feel safe. And we're constantly putting, culture is constantly actually acting on faith even if they don't realize that's what they're doing. They're acting out in faith. And so from that standpoint, as a follower of Jesus, we're actually have some similarities with people who aren't following Jesus just in the fact that we put our faith in something. Now, we differ in what we put our faith in. But it's the same thing. We put our faith in something. In Hill City, hear me. We actually have to put more contemplation into the question of what's your faith in than maybe you think you do. Because I can stand up here and say, what's your faith in? You can go, Jesus. I know the answer to that one. It's Jesus. Right, but as we're going to see today, as we look through Mark 11, is there some things that are maybe a little more sneaky, a little more subtle, that maybe you don't even realize you're placing your faith in. Because that question of what's your faith in affects the question and the answer to what's your faith produce. They go hand in hand. And so Jesus today in Mark 11, as we see this interaction, he's going to pose the same thought-provoking scenario for the people he interacts with. So we're going to see Jesus today continuing on his path to his cross. But before we start in verse 12, we've got to take a look at where Brad took us last week. It's important, last week Brad started our summer of Easter. We started walking through the final week of Jesus' life. And last week, what we saw is Jesus making his first public messianic act. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are waving palm branches and yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it's this statement from him. It's this public statement of, I am the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. But we end in a really weird scene, if you remember. Verse 11. Jesus enters into the temple, stands there. He kind of does like the dad in a construction site looking around, observes what's going on, and then he just walks out. He leaves. And we're left with like, Jesus, what's next? What are you doing? You're intentional. What are we doing here? And that's what we're going to pick up in verse 12 today. So this is the very next day. This is the day after, the morning after he has went to the temple and observed what was happening. This is Jesus and the disciples and they're walking back towards Jerusalem. They're on foot. It's about a two-ish mile walk from where they were coming from. I love when the gospels do this. It shows the humanity of Jesus. There comes this point where it's like, Jesus, he's got to eat. He's hungry. He's human. He's fully human. We see it come out here, but he's, he gets hungry. So as he's walking on this journey back to Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree in the distance. He sees a, a fig tree with leaves on it, and he walks up to it, and he looks through it. And it says in verse 13 that he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And what's he do? He curses it. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It's a weird first scene. Another weird first scene we're getting here. Like I just imagine the disciples off to the side within earshot and Jesus looks in the tree and he goes, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. They're like looking at each other like, what's this, what's he doing? 
Why is he talking to a tree? And he comes back and they just keep walking. And the scene ends. If you're like me, I, I, I watch the scene in my head like it plays out like a movie for me. And I'm like, why is he cursing a tree who's not doing what it's not even supposed to be doing? It says it's not the season for figs. Why is he expected to have something on it? We're going to come back to that question. Hold on to it. We're not going to answer it yet, but here's what we know. This isn't a fit of rage from Jesus because he's hangry. That's not what this interaction is. It's not like he came to this, this fig tree and it didn't have what he wanted, so he threw a fit and cursed it. No, we're going to find out later. It's going to reveal itself. This is a symbolic lesson that he sees an opportunity. I mean, my parents in the room, you've probably had some moments where you had just like the perfect opportunity to teach your kids something. That's like kind of one of these opportunities, like Jesus sees the moment to cease a lesson, and that's what he's going to do, but we're not going to talk about the lesson yet. We're going to hold on to that. We're going to come back to that, because what we need to do is we need to see what Mark's doing here. We find ourselves in what Brad talked about early on in Mark, in a Mark and Sandwich, right? And if you remember, a Mark and Sandwich, Mark uses this, this literary tool to do this. It takes two, two, one story, and it puts another story in between it. So we have our bread, our meat, and another piece of bread. And the meat informs the bread's meaning. And so to figure out what this fig tree interaction is, we actually have to keep working our way through this Markin sandwich. And so we move on. Jesus gets to Jerusalem. This is his second time there in two days. He was there less than 12 hours ago. But today, the scene we get with Jesus in the temple is a very different scene. He doesn't just walk in and observe what's happening. In verse 15, it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So Jesus walks in and he causes a scene. Jesus is on one today. Like he's not messing around. He's cursing trees. He's flipping tables. Like he is not messing around today. Like there's this moment, he's not even letting people carry merchandise through the temple courts. He's like knocking quarters out of people's hands. He's like, stop. Stop. Why? Why is Jesus worked up at what he's seeing? Remember the night before he comes in, he observes, and he saw something he didn't like. He saw something he knew he was going to do something about. On the screen behind me, we're going to see a picture of the temple. Maybe some of you have been to where this was, but we got is this massive temple in front of us. It would cover about 35 acres of land, like this thing is massive. And you see these two massive courtyards on both sides. This is what was called the court of the Gentiles. And in this court of the Gentiles, this was the only place that a non-Jewish Jewish person could be in all the temple is in these two courtyard areas. And these court, this, this court of the Gentiles was designed for the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, to come and to contemplate and to reflect and to encounter the heart of God. But what's taking place instead? Is this become a market? It's not a place of worship. It's not a place of reflection. It's a market. I don't know if anybody's ever been to the farmer's market at Farmer's Park on a Saturday. It's one of the most stressful places I've ever been in my life. 
It's horrible. Especially during the cold months, they have it like it's under this awning and they have it wrapped to keep it warm. And you walk in there, there's like hundreds of people, people trying to sell you honey or a donut. You got people trying to talk to you, you got animals running around you. It, you can't contemplate what you want to have for lunch in there. It's so busy. I think what we're experiencing here with Jesus as he's in the Gentile courts makes farmer market on a Saturday look like Brad's back porch from last week. Calm and serene. This place is busy. It is buzzing. It's known that about 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed during this time of year. Plus other animals being sold. And that's just on one side of the temple. On the other side, there's people exchanging money. People coming in from out of town who need the right currency. This place is loud and it's busy. So it's not even accomplishing its original intention of contemplation and prayer. So why does Jesus do this? Well, as one theologian says, the Jewish leaders had made the worship of God practically impossible by converting the only place Gentiles could pray in the temple into a market. It's become impossible. Its its original intention is no longer getting accomplished because of all the religious activity happening around them. And so Jesus responds with this, these big actions and flipping tables, but he also responds with a very authoritative statement. And that statement we get in verse 17. Jesus saying this in front of these people and the people he's stopping, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus here is recalling two Old Testament scriptures he's pulling from. The first part of verse 17 where he talks about the house of prayer, he's pulling from Isaiah 56, 7. And for these these Jewish leaders who are listening to Jesus here talking in the temple, it would invoke this scripture because they knew their Bible. It would invoke Isaiah 56, 7 for them. And what happens in Isaiah 56 is Isaiah is communicating God's heart for the foreigner. God's heart for the Gentile, God's heart for the non-Jewish person, that there's a place for the foreigner in his house, that he is accepting, and there's a place for them to be in relationship with God. And so Jesus here in this statement in the temple, Jesus is helping everybody know here's God's original intention, but then this dinner robber statement he makes is from Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, when we look at what's going on here, is an indictment on the nation of Israel. It's actually an indictment on their empty religious activity. It talks about how the people of Israel would come and they would steal, they would commit murder, they would commit adultery, they would even worship other gods, but when it was time for temple, they'd show up and be like, I'm here I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. If they, they would think that would accomplish everything they needed to accomplish, but throughout their week, they're not, they weren't living what, for what that stood for. So Jesus is taking these two Old Testament scriptures and he's showing God's original intention and what the Jewish leaders have turned it into. Which they've turned a place of worship into a place of empty religious practice. But here's the thing, you wouldn't have guessed it, 
you showed up to this temple, you went to this court of Gentiles, it looked like it was buzzing. It looked really holy. People buying animals to fulfill the Jewish law. But Jesus here sees beneath the surface. He sees what's actually going on here. He identifies the issue. Here is the issue that Jesus is identifying here. It's people mistaking the act of something for a heart of worship. People were mistaking the act of something for a heart of worship. And listen, let's step into this room today. We know that that is not just an old practice. We live in that same tension. At least I do. I give my 10%. I tithe. I do it. I do my diligence as a, as a fellow member of this church. Don't make mistake the act of tithing for a heart of generosity. Those are different. Here's another one. Aaron, I'm here. I show up on a Sunday. I'm listening to the sermon. Don't mistake the act of attendance for the heart of a follower. They're different. Aaron, 6 a.m., I wake up, I pop open my Bible, I turn to Proverbs and read the proverb that coincides with the day of the, of the month it is, right? I read through it, I journal, I pray at the end, I close it up, I finish drinking my coffee. Listen, don't mistake the act of reading your Bible for a transformed heart. Listen, all of these things are good. I want to encourage everybody. You should be tithing. We should be tithing. We should be reading our Bible. We should be a part of a body of Christ. But listen, if we're not careful, if we're not considering and reflecting on our own heart, it can become just as much of an empty religious practice as what we see happening in the Jewish temple right here. Just as quickly and just as subtly. It's all of our jobs and our own situations to have the integrity to ask questions like, where am I mistaking an act for God as a heart of worship? We have to have the integrity to ask questions like that. But you know who wasn't? The Jewish leadership. They weren't willing to ask questions like that. So instead, when they hear this from Jesus... They're immediately like, he's got to go. He's got to die. Says they saw a way to destroy him. He's out. And they're not just upset because Jesus indicted what they'd created in this sacrificial system. They're also upset because what Jesus is doing here is he's showing his authority. To come into the temple and to turn over tables and to correct the Jewish sacrificial system takes the authority of one person and one person only, and that's the Messiah. Only the Messiah could do that. And so they're threatened because Jesus is actually doing something much deeper here. He's not only challenging the Jewish leaders, he actually knows that by the end of this week, this entire temple is going to become irrelevant. They're no longer going to need a sacrificial system. And that's where Jesus is taking us. So the people who are here, they're hearing this. And it says that they were astonished 
at his teaching. They're completely blown away, which the Jewish leaders also don't like. They're not a fan of that. And so nighttime comes and they leave. Jesus and the disciples leave. And so we get to the next day. The next morning, Jesus and his disciples are on the same route out of Jerusalem that they were into Jerusalem. And I love Peter. They're walking. Peter in the distance sees that fig tree again. He's like, Rabbi, look. That tree you cursed, it's withered up. It's like this funny moment. Like the disciples still don't fully understand. Like what Jesus says happens. And so they're still blown away that when he says something crazy is going to happen and it happens. They're like, how's he doing it? This is crazy. And these next four words that Jesus says is the summary of everything we've seen so far from this text in Mark. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. I'm going to kind of step away from this story, but kind of not. If you're here this morning and you're not in a place where you're following Jesus yet, first of all, I appreciate your bravery to be somewhere like here. I'm really glad you're here. It takes a lot of courage to show up at a place like this if you're not in the same place as you believe the people in the road next to you are. It takes a lot of bravery. But also, there's nothing more important you're going to hear today than those four words. Have faith in God. It's the only thing that can ever change anything. That will ever radically transform your life. But why does Jesus start here? I believe it's because it's where we also need to start. Whether you're not following Jesus yet or you've been following Jesus for 50 years, we always have to start with what's our faith in? That's the gospel-centered life. What's our faith in? And this is what this whole story has been building up to. Because what you put your faith in determines what your faith produces. What you put your faith in determines what your faith produces. Yesterday, Jesus and the disciples were in this temple where they had put their faith in religious activity. And so what did it produce? Busyness. It didn't produce a contemplative, slow, prayerful, God-fearing life. It produced religious busyness. And so what happens when Jesus challenges the thing that these Jewish leaders are putting their faith in? They get insecure. All of a sudden, they're fearful. All of a sudden, the foundation of their faith is being rocked. And that's where we have to go today. We have to put our faith in God because faith in God, that faith produces security. Faith in God produces security. Because listen, we can very easily do the same thing as the Jewish leaders if we're not careful. Putting our faith in things that don't make sense. Danny Mack said it to me this way, we create functional saviors. We put things in place that the only thing that belongs in there is God. But we ourselves find functional saviors. 
But here's the deal. When our faith is in these functional saviors, it's really easy for evil to challenge our faith. Why? Because none of those things that we put our faith in can withstand doubt. They can't withstand pushback. They can't withstand something testing them. But you know what can? God. So let's see the deeper thing happening here. And it's theologically rich. Jesus, in this story, as he's challenging the Jewish sacrificial system, he's actually helping us know, because we know this, The Jewish leaders didn't know this yet. The disciples didn't even fully understand this yet. But Jesus is is changing the focus. He's shifting the focus from the Jewish sacrificial system. And he's shifting it, as we'll see in less than a week, to his death and resurrection. He's saying, don't put your faith in the sacrifice of animals. Put your faith in my life, death, and resurrection. Don't put your faith in keeping the Sabbath. Put your faith in my life, death, and resurrection. So to us, he's saying, don't put your faith in your religious efforts. Put it in my life, death, and resurrection. Don't put your faith in your ability to disciple, your ability to parent, your ability to serve, your ability to tithe, read your Bible, whatever it is. Don't put your faith in your religious efforts. Put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of me. That's the only thing that can create secure faith, is him. It's really easy to judge the Jewish leaders, I think, because you look at what they're doing, and it it doesn't seem to add up on this side of the story. But their insecurity makes a ton of sense to me. Because they're trusting in things that are going to fall apart. But Jesus doesn't. So faith in God, that faith produces security. But that faith also produces fruit. Faith in God produces fruit. Let's come back to the fig tree. In the very beginning, Jesus comes to this fig tree, says it had leaves on it, and he doesn't find anything in the leaves. And you're like, Aaron, it wasn't supposed to, it wasn't even the season for figs. I'm not a fig tree farmer either, so I don't know a whole lot about how fig trees function. I had to find this out as well. When a tree had leaves, when a fig tree had leaves, it would communicate there's something edible on this tree. That's what it would signify. And so when Jesus comes across this fig tree and he sees the leaves, what's his first thought? There's something to eat. It has fruit. And it's the same as we look at these Jewish leaders. It's an empty show. It looks great. It looks nice. It's maybe even wrapped in something really pretty. But when you look into the depths of it, what's it really have? Nothing. They have lives full of religious activity, but hearts empty from worship. And so faith produces fruit, but faith produces fruitful living. The way you live your life matters. He'll say, hear me. We are moving towards a time as followers of Jesus 
where the fruits of having faith in God are going to become harder and harder. To live your life in a certain way, to believe in certain things, to talk a certain way is going to become harder and harder because now more more than ever in our specific context in America, it's becoming more and more countercultural. But the call to live out of those fruits remains the same. Just because because it's becoming harder doesn't mean we change how we live. Because faith manifests itself in the external, how we live it out. So faith produces fruitful living, but faith also produces fruitful prayers we see here in the end of this story. And listen, this isn't a sermon about prayer. But prayer and faith are inseparable. They come together. Prayer is an incredibly dependent position we put ourselves in. Theologian Edwards says it this way, faith believes enough to ask. Listen, this isn't a call to more faith so you get what you want. It's not a call to shame those who are praying for something and aren't receiving it because they don't have enough faith. No, it's a, it's a call to trusting in God so much, to have so much faith in God that you can ask for something as if it's already happened. That's a special type of faith. Why? That type of faith is vulnerable. Leads us in a position to be disappointed. And it also puts us in a position of hope. I don't know if you're anything like me, hope can really suck. Hope can be really hard. I don't love to hope. I actually like to kill hope a lot. Because if I don't hope for it, well, then if it doesn't happen, then at least I'm not that upset because I never really thought it would. It's called a faith. Deep faith. That's what we're seeing communicated throughout this in the entirety of this story. Fruitful prayer isn't getting what you asked for. Fruitful prayer is dependence on God. If you're serving communion, you can go ahead and make your way to getting in position. So I'm at the lake house. I'm having this conversation with this family friend, and I get to tell him, hey, I agree with you. I actually commend how you view following Jesus. I agree it is an all-in or all-out kind of thing. There's no halfway in, halfway out. But then we get to talking about the tension between a life in pursuit of holiness and a life still living under the grace provided through Jesus. And I get to share with him, like, I I believe both can be true. Right, and that's what I got to end with. And it's the same thing Jesus ends with here in verse 25. Talks about prayer. And the type of prayer we're supposed to do, which is a faith-filled prayer. Prayer so certain of the goodness and authority of God that we pray as if things have already happened. And then he gets to verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, say that your Father also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Why does Jesus end this with forgiveness? It kind of feels out of place when you read it. Why is he in with forgiveness? 
It's because, church, forgiveness is the feature of our faith. Forgiveness is the heart posture of God. When we look at the, even the original sacrificial system that we're encountering here, it was created as a means of forgiveness and atonement for sins. God's heart's natural inclination is to forgive. And that's true of our need for Jesus. As we come here today, as we're getting ready to take communion, as we have the, the bread broken that resembles the body of Christ and is dipped in the juice that resembles the blood of Christ. Here's what we know. We know our inability to live holistically whole, perfect, fruitful lives. We do fall short. And that's why we need this forgiveness that Jesus talks about here in verse 25. Because we're imperfect. We're broken and we know it. But also... The thing we know is that Jesus lived a perfectly fruitful life. A life that didn't deserve judgment, a life that didn't deserve death, but he also knew our inability to live a fruitful life. And so what did he do? He made a way. He took on the death we deserved. And so as we get the chance to come and take part in communion, to come to the table, may that be the thing we reflect on today. To know we've been called to have faith in a God who's made a way. But also faith in a God who has authority and forgives. And through a deep heart of worship for that God, we live out fruitful lives. Can you come and take part in the table?